Hello everyone, belated Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and to non-believers such as myself, just a happy holidays to you and a happy new year to everyone. Welcome to Binge Thinking, I'm your host Casper Roxburgh and this is episode 2. Thank you to everyone who's gotten on board already and listened to episode 1 with Jeff Anderson Jr. I'm happy to say the podcast is now available on iTunes, on Stitcher for Android devices, and via our website. If you like the show, please do share us on social media. It makes a huge difference. You can like us on Facebook by searching Binge Thinking Podcast, and you can follow us on Twitter at binge underscore think. If you have any feedback for the show, you can contact us and you can even suggest a guest via our website at bingethinkingpodcast.com. For this episode, I sat down with 24-year-old evolutionary scientist Kate Garland. Despite only just finishing her Bachelor of Science with honours, she's already a published author, which for anyone outside academia is an incredible achievement. She's also the Queensland coordinator of the Jane Goodall Institute's Roots and Shoots Foundation. Aside from this, Kate has also won awards from the University of Queensland and from the Australian Mammalian Society, and she's worked as a research assistant and tutor at the University of Queensland. We sat down and binged being an evolutionary scientist, the passion for doing good, being a scientist and an activist, mental health in science, issues facing funding for research, and being a woman in science. And we even had a brief chat about Star Wars. It was an amazing chat. I really enjoyed it, and I really hope you do too. If you do, like I said, please do share it with your friends and family. And now I give you Kate Garland. Yeah, you got to see it. I saw it. Yeah, did you see it? I saw it too. Okay, calm down. Um, uh, Did you see The Force Awakens? Um, Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's cool. It's like probably as good. The whole idea. As good. As good, I I would say. I loved The Force Awakens. Yeah, so did I. And it's sort of like the thing too where you like fall like for the characters, like you're instantly instantly introduced to them and then like you still like like them already sort of thing. Like you don't don't have to have the attachment that you had with Han Solo or something like that. Like it's like, well, these characters are awesome already. Yeah, right. Spoiler. Yeah, really good. Yeah, Yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, let's get started. (laughs) We're live here with Kate Garland. Thanks for coming, Kate. Thanks for being guest number two. Oh, number two is always the best number. Well, yeah. yeah. No, it comes right after first. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to start by asking you if you could tell the audience who you are and what you do in your own words. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Kate Garland and I guess I'm a um, an evolutionary scientist, a baby one maybe at that, and also going into roots and shoots sort of work. And doing um, work with the Jane Goodall Institute, so I'm the Roots and Shoots coordinator, which isn't a big thing in Australia right now, but is a rather big thing in Africa and in America. And so I do work with um, kids and inspiring youth, and I do that as an add-on to my science career in evolutionary science. Yeah, that's what I do. So you say that you're an evolutionary scientist. What does that really mean to you? What, what do you mean when you say that? Yeah, it's pretty broad and... Um, I guess from my end of evolutionary science, what I want to do is not 
the thing in the lab that everyone thinks about when they think about evolutionary well, science. Well, I what guess. does a what does an evolutionary scientist typically do? Because you know, I mean, I'm just thinking. Oh yeah. Well, I'm a scientist, as yeah. you know, yeah. but I don't even know what an evolutionary scientist yeah. actually does, yeah. and I would wage you know good money that maybe the some of the audience members wouldn't know either so. yeah well for one they're not even I, I found this out like the better term is evolutionary biologist but i don't know anyway there's like um i guess what they can encompass any field because that's the field of evolution so like you can get evolutionary scientists in agriculture and you can get them in genetics, in insects, and you can get them in um, social science. You can get them in psychology. So evolutionary scientists could be a lot of things and it's very broad. So I guess what I'm an evolutionary biologist and so I look at living animals and how they've evolved. Specifically, I like the big picture of evolution, the final picture. So rather than being at the smaller end of evolution where you're looking at finite level things, so looking at um, genes and how they interact to bring about a trait. I look at the trait level and look at how that is brought about throughout evolutionary history. So I do that with bones or I do that with um, phenotypic analysis and stuff like that, which are big words, but all they really mean is that I'm just looking at the overall picture of an organism or an animal and seeing how they got that certain leg to make them do that certain thing or how they got that, you know, those ears to make them hear a certain way or like stuff like that rather mm. than looking at the gene level of something. That's what I want to do. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you mentioned uh, this work with, uh, was it Jane Goodall? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I fumbled you, that a bit, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, no, 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 no. I'm just wondering. So, you know, that was one one side of what you said that you do is working with um, as an evolutionary mm, scientist. Yeah. And, you know, you've explained that really nicely. And yeah. can you talk about the, the other work that you do and just kind of yeah. explain that a little more? Well, that one's one that's sort of come about only in the last year pretty much with me um, I've been so focused and driven on my academic and my science career and now that I've sort of had a nice break between the next stage of that so going from um, my undergraduate degree to further studies and getting fully into research I've had this break where I'm like oh you know I want to try a few other things in that I'm passionate about because you know I'm passionate about science but I'm also just a big animal nerd so I love <laughs> conservation and like and I've always loved Jane Goodall so Jane Goodall I love her as a kid because she was this per incredible person that you know really young and a woman mm. blonde like me so I was like oh so <laughs> relatable and I saw her, like you know her story of going out into the wild and being with chimpanzees and interacting like that was just incredible and so that story's followed through and with me for my whole life is that you know someone like who's a scientist can have such a powerful voice and also a scientist in looking into like the bigger picture not not into like how to cure cancer or not into how to you know build something amazing they're more into like the the bigger picture of, of nature and evolution and and how humans fit in with the whole natural world and I always thought that was really incredible and so this year, I saw that Roots and Shoots, which is a branch off the Jane Goodall Institute, was advertising um, for a coordinator position. And I was like, I don't really know what that means, but that sounds awesome. And so what the coordinator does is they help with facilitating Roots and Shoots. And Roots and Shoots is all about going out to kids and empowering them in, in aspects of APE, which is animals, people, and the environment. Mm. And they do that through sort of grassroots projects and get the kids their own project and encourage them to find their passion and then you know sort of empower them and say here you can use that passion to save the world and yeah. providing that hope because I think a lot of kids in the generation at the moment are you know it is hard to have hope when mm. 
you know, there's a lot of bad things coming with climate change and, you know, extinct species. Mm. And so all these things are happening. And so know, what, yeah. what kind of stuff do you do with the kids? Like, can you give me yeah. an example of one of these oh. ways that you get them all fired up and, and hopeful again? <laughs> it's just Jane Goodall, like, and maybe a bit of my story too. Like, I think um, I'm selected for the role because I'm a scientist. But first of all, I just tell them Jane's story. So I just mm. talk about how, you know, you can be really young and you can go out there and save chimpanzees. You can go save the world um, by doing really small things and having hope and having love and using your passion for good. And so Jane Goodall always talks about how the smallest difference collectively can make the biggest difference. And mm. so I just go to a school, I do a speech, and then I encourage, you know, a teacher or usually there's one group of kids or a kid that'll have a passion. They'll be like, yep, I've been wanting to do this. And now yeah. I know that you're a person that can give me that get go. And mm. so you can start projects. It's also hugely rewarding for mm. me because it just like makes me feel good every day oh, um, doing that. Yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot in there. Yeah. You know, you have so much passion and you seem to have so much passion going in so many different directions. Uh, I was going to ask you what your passion is. And in a way, that's kind of what I'm trying to ask now, you know, given that it seems like there are so many different areas. Like what, what, how, what would you call your passion? How would you describe your passion? Um, I think for me, it all comes down to the concept of evolution and our connectedness with the world. And that's what I'm so passionate about. So for one, I'm passionate about understanding that connectivity and and, and finding, you know, the science side of that and how everything's connected. And then also on the other end, I'm passionate about how to enable that connectivity. And that's where Roots and Shoots comes in. And f finding out about evolution when I was in year nine or something was just this point where, and maybe it was a religion to me or a spiritual sort of thing, but I sort of found like a way that everything fit together in the world. And I was like, oh, you know, I understand my place a little bit more. And every time I feel a bit lost, I'll come back to sort of those concepts of how, you know, I can make a positive difference and my life is, you know, going all right as long as I'm connected in those sorts of ways. And yeah, it's kind of like a weird religion, I guess. I don't know. Well, it's interesting you mentioned religion because um, like you were talking before and you mentioned save the world yeah. a few times. And <laughs> I did. <I> <laughs> yeah, and I'm just wondering like, you know, do you... I thought it was interesting how you said, you know, you were talking about Jane Goodall's experience mm. and how, you know, look, just some young girl can go off yeah. and go and, and save the world. I mean, what, what's your view on that? Like, how yeah. do you view saving the world? Do you think that that's something that people can do? And do you feel like there's something religious going on there? Or, or how do you put all that together? Well, there's two ways I feel about it. In a way, like, I feel like, that we always should try. Um, but then, you know, with climate change, the idea of humans saving the world at the moment, we're not really doing that, are we? We're just. Mm. Well, another case in point would be Aleppo. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, just I mean, we yeah. can't even seem to save ourselves, no, let alone the world. No, we don't. We don't have that empathy or that ability to collectively join together and do that. Though saving the world, maybe we can't. Um, but I would hate to be someone that went down not trying and I think that telling the future generations but you know there's no point trying um that's just a a bad way to go out like I don't know yeah. if we go out it's like go yeah. out fighting yeah kind of idea yeah 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 100 yeah. percent. going in into that a little bit more you know so you obviously act as quite an activist mm. within your professional role in terms of uh you know you you have a, a particular skill set that's recognized by society and within the sciences 
and you also take an activist position, maybe not at the same time that you're doing your work at mm. a university. You do it separately, like with this Roots and Shoots organization, but nonetheless, you are an activist. You don't shy away from being an activist. Yeah. How do you see that twin role between the objective scientist mm. and the public activist? Because I know from my own experience in science that it's actually quite a controversial area. Yeah. You know, a lot of scientists feel very strongly that mm. it's not appropriate to be an activist or that mm. you can only be an activist in certain ways or in certain scenarios. Mm. And yeah. you know, how do you manage that, um, you know, vis-a-vis your like, professional integrity, I suppose? Yeah. I think for me, science has moved away especially in Australia, from its ideas of scientists being the thinkers and being the philosophers to more where now these industry tools to find out cool things that can do cool stuff. And I feel like that that movement has made us feel like we have to be quieter about things. And the famous example of that, I can't remember his name and he's Danish. So that's like my Danish heritage is my mom is shaking her head at me. But the <laughs> scientist that pretty much came up with the idea of the atomic bomb, he didn't believe in the use of the atomic bomb at all and mm. he was sort of quieted a bit by it um, because of this push for finding out sort of the the use for that science and that can be the danger and when you don't get scientists um, thinking and speaking at the same time it's not going to work out well for anyone because you've got these highly intellectual people that are finding out really cool new things but they constantly have to question themselves if these cool new things are good things. And mm. otherwise that can be a very dangerous place you go in science. I always joke that the 70s was the worst for it, but you know, maybe people look back and say the 2000s are the worst for it, but it's psychological science. We were doing awful things to yeah. humans and primates in regards to psychology and mm. psychological tests. And so, you know, I guess it's important for us to have, um, yeah, thinking and speaking at the same time. Yeah. So it's almost like... We're kind of living in a fantasy land if we think that we can avoid the necessary advocacy that goes in hand in hand with science. Yeah, you definitely. Know, there's like, always advocacy. Even silence is a kind of, well, not advocacy, but a silence is a kind of quiet acceptance mm, and tacit yeah. allowance of, of the things that go on. Yeah. You mentioned that you think that at the time for um, being the quiet thinkers and philosophers is gone. Has the climate debate in Australian politics been a particular kind of uh, watershed for you in that regard? I guess the the climate debate, it's sort of an interesting one because it, it's the classic idea of what happens when scientists are, like probably for me now I'm a little awkward because I've got a, a microphone in front of my face. Like I'm <laughs> a, quite a shy person and um, not all scientists are of course like that, but um, you know, vast majority of us rather would be hiding behind our test tubes and not talking to anyone and then when we have to talk to the media it gets a bit muddled and the train of thought gets lost and you also get the media having to represent two sides equally when it's not equal Mm. and then what happens there is scientists sort of with the climate change debate will be like well of course climate change is real and then you get this sort of idea that the media is not representing that so then scientists will be like oh we give up like you know obviously you're not listening to us and that's so bad and that's why Tim Flannery has been so good so I think it's a bit of a It was a bit of a worry, but I think scientists are tackling that issue of being advocates and being activists while also being scientists and saying, Mm. here's the results, like, listen to us, please. Yeah. 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 Um, 
just changing gears for a bit. So earlier on, you we were talking about how you are both uh, by day, I guess, a evolutionary scientist and, and by night, <laughs> and by night a, a, an advocate for saving the world with <laughs> yeah. uh, roots and shoots. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think about this a lot with my working life. You know, mm. I have a job that I do nine to five, Monday to Friday, but there's so much more that I want. And, mm, and the yeah. specific job that I work on is not that's not my dream in terms of how I would want to ultimately use my skill set that I gained in my in my scientific career. Mm. And, you know, I obviously I have other passions as well. Like I just started this podcast and yeah. you know, I, I've done a yeah. lot of other stuff like that as well. So yeah. I got two questions. Um, so the first <laughs> one is, you know, how do you manage your time between doing what you love, mm. at, you know, like your passion project, like the work with the Jane Goodall Roots and Shoots and then doing your, your day job? Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a hard one because for me this year, I've been really living the philosophy of where you get your money is not sometimes where you're going to go in life and that's not your dream and your passion because, yeah, yeah um, to be honest and I really want to be honest about this is that um, because it's kind of lame but then, you know, I'm proud of it too is that I this year I've made my money um, from teaching in science but mainly from working in a call center and being having vulgar people yell at me on the phone and really oh. nice people sometimes too um, yeah. and I feel like I've talked to the whole Australia. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I think that's that's the truth of it is that, you know, I've had to pursue my passions and my dreams in science and in conservation activism while also doing stuff I don't enjoy. And that's something that our generation of young people with this change in jobs that we're having where, you know, old jobs that, you know, used to be stable jobs are disappearing and we're moving into different kinds of jobs, um, more jobs that are, you know, ones that could be done in a cafe rather than ones that are done in an office building. Yeah, with, you know, unstable hours. Yeah, and And sort of all over is that you have to change how you have your mindset about your work. Mm. Otherwise, you're going to run yourself there like because when you know I got home from working like a full day and then I want to do a full day of science as well on top of that it yeah. it gets hard it gets exhausting and I would ha- look at envy at um, someone that could do full-time science and but that mm. would be my goal and I'd be like yeah. I just got to keep working towards that and so I think fitting in everything you want to do all at once is something our age group wants to do because that's what we're told we should be able to get straight out of uni but it's just not going to work out that way like you're just gonna, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna have to do a bit of things that you're not gonna like initially mm-hmm. yeah. um but don't forget that that goal that you're going for and reward yourself with little goals that's a huge thing I've learned this year is like you know my paper took a year to go through review and when it got its second round of acceptance I threw the biggest party I was so happy that yeah. it hadn't even been fully accepted yet but I was just like wow I'm, I'm slowly becoming a scientist and I think rather than yeah giving yourself like you know a goal of and only rewarding yourself for the big goals is the biggest mistake you can make in our age group and that's how I get through really busy times and really tough times yeah Mm, yeah okay so we kind of already talked about this but Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you anyway just because you might be able to talk about something else and it might be interesting and I might end up using it so one question that I try and ask guests Mm -hmm. is um, if they have a struggle Mm. and if they do what it is ah I, I, I don't know I guess 
Um, I have many struggles. I really like chocolate. Um, and <laughs> that's like my biggest, but it, it's related to my field because when I get like worried, I'll be like, <gasps> and I'll just like go find a chocolate and I'll just like engulf it. Like, but yeah. th- that's a weakness. Um, a big weakness for me and talking about mental health and all those sorts of things and also research um, is that I have anxiety. And so like, you know, I think drawing from that, that that's, it can be seen as a weakness, but it's actually a very common um, I think a lot of scientists might have it because like you have to be a bit anxious and a bit paranoid being like, did I just do that right? Am I being biased? Did I make yeah. that measurement right? Mm. And it can be, but it can be crippling. Like, you know, when you're writing something or you're going up to speak, you know, being anxious yeah. cannot be as great. But in that being said, like I, I don't have severe anxiety, but I, I've had it since I was in probably early high school mm. and I feel like that that's my greatest weakness, but also like a strength that I draw on. But yeah, it is a really good thing to talk about because from an evolutionary scientist perspective, like it's something that is really important for us. Like, cause I've been to like a therapist when I was in high school about it and I um, was so confused about what it was. I was like, oh, it must be cuckoo or something. And she's like, nah, it's really normal. And she explained it from a scientist perspective to me, which was so great. Cause she's like, you know, back in the day when you had that fight or flight mode as a cave, per- like cave person, cave woman, um, <laughs> you, you know, you would have acted on it and that was anxiety making you act. Mm. And that's so important you just have that instinctual um feeling that sort of stayed as a residue inside you as you know humans have evolved yeah that's not going to go away because it's so important for you to have that um Mm. fight or flight mode so yeah talking about it is really important because it's not going to go away it's part of what we are and Mm. it's better to understand it than pretend it's not there Yeah. yeah absolutely yeah that's great um what's it like being a young person working in evolutionary biology we've Mm. talked about a few things already Mm. but i'm just interested to see if there if you think that there are any unique perspectives for younger people in your specific field or if there are any specific challenges perhaps or differential experience um i think the best thing my supervisor ever told me when I went for the honors role um, in my particular area of evolutionary biology was that, you know, this is really ivory tower. You're not going to get a job out of this. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, it's just honors. Like I'll see what happens. I probably won't even pursue that. And then now I've fallen in love with it. Yeah. Um, and so it is evolutionary biology, particularly my field. Like I'm not a ge- genetic sort of related person. I want to incorporate that so I can get jobs. But <laughs> <laughs> I think, It is harder because, especially in Australia, this sort of knowledge for knowledge sake evolutionary biology is not as well received as it is um, in other parts of the world. And that's a challenge. It's a challenge to have the amazing things you're finding being acknowledged like they should because they are amazing things. And that sort of movement of science into a more industry sort of perspective rather than the philosophy I think science is and it's it's good we can get grants because we're working with industries more but it also means that arguing knowledge for knowledge sake is a lot harder yeah (laughs) and so I think that's the hardest thing that I would say to young people is if you want to instantly get a job out of evolutionary science particularly like macro morphological science that I do you could in like you know you definitely can it's just that little bit harder and the skills you take away aren't lesser in value but they're harder to apply to 
broader areas of science. Yeah. yeah so, but for me, they're funner. <laughs> you find that quite often is a problem in, in science, right? Mm. You know, we, we discover really interesting things and we say, oh my God, you know, we've got to, we've got to pursue this. We've got to go follow the rabbit hole because this could be huge. Yeah. And people tend to turn around and say, no, sorry. Yeah that's outside the scope of the project oh, yeah. or you try and get funding for it and you just can't because mm. it's not hot. Yeah. It's not, it's not what's in. Yeah. And, oh, I, I can't stand this yeah. part about science. Yeah. And how much damage do you think that is doing, that, mm. that fact? And, I mean, I, it's always been the case to some extent, but mm. I, I agree with your, you know, idea that it's more so now. And mm. you look at things like, the innovation statement that mm. the government released um, last year, yeah. and they said basically we're going to fund, we're going to put more research funding into research that's mm. collaborating and in, with industry with a clear like end use. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I read that statement and I just thought, oh my god, like as if we're not already being told to do that mm. left, right, and center, and as yeah. if most of the funding doesn't require that to some degree mm. to begin with. I mean, yeah. how much damage do you think this sort of thing is doing to, um, you know, our building of knowledge, and you know, especially given the fact that these you know, this pure knowledge for knowledge sake research, mm. as yeah. we all know, can have massive spillover yeah. into, uh, you know, actual end use mm. for society and for industry and, and government and, and et cetera. Mm. I think it's like finding a, a better balance than what we have now. Of course, scientists, as like, like we were saying, they're so nerdy and passionate, so they can go down that rabbit hole. And sometimes it can get bad if you can't pull them back out. Like there's times <laughs> when you sort of... Uh, you need to pull yourself in and say like, hey, why why is this important? What am I actually looking for here? That's, you know, the beginning of science is what's my hypothesis? What's my aim? And that's really important. And that's when, you know, having a grant application or industries asking that of you is important mm. for scientists rather than just being like, I just want to see what happens. But that being said, and like what you talk about the spillover, um, I had this amazing uh, lecture when I first, the very first lecture in the, when I went to university was for this advanced science program, which is really amazing and would recommend it to anyone studying at UQ. And it's the guy said that science is like a Sudoku puzzle. And so you think you're solving um, something in some in another square. But then what you'll realize is that by solving that puzzle, you'll find an answer to another square and like, you know, the bottom right corner compared to the left corner or something like mm. that. And that's the beauty of science that I think isn't taught well from the beginning of school is like that you are searching for a problem, but how to integrate that science and how to, how it can apply to so many different things. That's what's missing. And it's just a failure of people to understand what science can do and the power for it. Because right now we watch, and I love David Attenborough, like, you know, (laughs) he's my God, but he's, you know, this um, instantaneous source of fun facts. And that's what people see scientists are as this, like, you know, this cue ball for answers rather than just someone looking for answers. And so science, Scientists are meant to be the people that find out things for us. But that's not our job. Our job is that we're looking for different answers. And I think that's what's lost. And that's why we're told um, that, you know, we're going to put money into these sections and these sections and these sections of science, which is very well and good. But, you know, 
the areas that they're putting money into, they don't realize that the answers that modern day medicine have founded, like anesthetic has been founded based off, you know, um, different areas of science completely. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's, there's needs, you need a better balance. Um, Ev- yeah. 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 Everything's connected. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. yeah. 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 Getting mystical now on the science show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I completely agree. I, mm. I think that there needs to be a better balance. Um, and, uh, you know, the way that we fund things is a reflection of our priorities mm. as as societies. And yeah. you know, I mean a lot of my work a lot of a lot of my work is focused in in international development, mm. using science for humanitarian purposes. Yeah. And, you know, there are funding streams for that mm. um, through aid aid funding. Yeah. Um, most major countries will have an organization that works in my field, agricultural science, because it has such a close relationship with mm. um, with poverty and with malnutrition and yeah. child malnutrition mm. and hunger and and you know it kind of feeds into everything else. No yeah. pun intended. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there is only funding for certain kinds of work mm. in that space, yeah. and it's very frustrating because sometimes you you work on something and you realize, especially in when you're working in overseas development, mm. that. Wow, you know, these people don't need this particular mm. problem-solving activity going on. You know, yeah. like they don't have problems with, uh, you know. Oh, I'm going to try and come up with an example which doesn't get me into trouble at work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we go in there and with an idea that we're going to control soil erosion, mm. and then you know, find out that well, that particular problem, while it's there, it's certainly not the most pressing, and yeah. it's going to be very hard to get people to work on it because there's this other problem that's really big, but we're not really allowed work on it, mm. or we find the solution, but we don't have any um, support to make sure that that solution is properly communicated and that there's help for people to implement the changes so your funding structures can be quite uh cumbersome um i've i've had a long-standing dream personally to eventually become a kind of self-funded free radical scientist where i somehow end up you know kind of well off enough that i don't really need to work um to survive you know assuming that i could have enough money to get by and also to have enough money to put into projects Mm. um i've had this really nice idea in my head that one day i'll free myself of the shackles of the funding body (laughs) the donor you know and and be able to do things the way that you know i think they should be done Mm. still collaborating with others Mm. i wonder what you think about my idea i think that's a lovely idea and i think it's in a way it happens um, and it's starting to happen with cool things like I don't know, GoFundMe. Yeah. You see a lot of scientists that don't get their grants and then they're like, okay, please someone else. And Really? Yeah, I've never seen yeah, it. Really? It's, it's kind of, it, I think it's a becoming more an option and it's wrongfully like frowned upon a bit. But then, you know, it's important research. If you're at the beginnings of you know, getting it ready, then at least give it a go. Um, it's not as long as you're getting everything else like ethics permits and your papers are getting peer reviewed then it's not bad science you're just yeah, getting sure. the money for it and yeah. um yeah. if people are donating it they're donating knowing that you know they don't know everything about the science or i yeah. don't know how that end works but yeah i think that that sort of idea of giving money and to scientists is good and like sort of not mm. getting it out of the government's hands um and putting your money into knowledge you want to find out i think it's a really powerful thing all right so again this is a question that we've kind of already covered in or, or we've talked about stuff that might be easily be an answer to it yeah. but i'm still going to ask it 
if you could change something about your industry, mm. what would it be? Um, I think one of the major things that I've been thinking about and it ties in with the work I do um, with Jane Goodall Institutes of Roots and Shoots is the education in tertiary at tertiary level, especially in science, in that when you go into tertiary level education, you get these nerdy scientists that most of them want to be back in the lab. They don't want to be talking to undergrads that who also don't really want to be there. Um, <laughs> so like, it, I think that that's lost because there's so many valuable teachers and teaching's a hard job and to teach right is hard. And for some reason, we're giving researchers two jobs and we're saying be a teacher and be a researcher and do both really well and also publish papers because that's how we're going to determine how you get your career. And I think that's so harsh. It's such a harsh thing to do mm. for anyone because it means that, you know, either the education's going to drop or the research is going to drop. Um, and I think putting better value on the education system in tertiary level, so in universities, is something that I would really strive to do. So you can have full-time lecturers. I think that, like, and I know it's a thing, um, but really pushing for it more. Um, but, and but what about the notion that, you know, you want your students to be taught by somebody who is a world-class researcher yeah. who really knows what they're talking yeah. about and who is up to date yeah. as well. I mean, you know, I mean, there's a reason why we have the system the way it is. So so what about that? I think, yeah, and that's what I'm struggling with too. So I'm still thinking about it because I'm just like, it's not fair because like you see researchers that they like resent teaching in a way and you're like, you shouldn't be resenting a thing that's really beautiful and lovely and what all scientists like to do and talk mm. about their their field of passion but i think that that there has to be sort of you know you can be a and i know it's a thing but you can be a full-time researcher and then um heart part-time lecturer or something like that but i think having people that do course planning people that do planning for exams set exams yeah. they could be full-time teachers because those sorts of things can consume so much time for a researcher mm. And also aren't testing knowledge in a way that, you know, a teacher could test knowledge evenly yeah. and fairly yeah. and and teaching in a way that, you know, can teach not just one type of individual, but a whole suite of individuals, which is so important. All the way. All the way. Um, I was wondering, it wouldn't be a show with a female scientist without asking the classic question, what's it like for you? In your experience, what's it been like being a woman in science? And I would just bring up, the fact that you talked about Jane Goodall mm, yeah. as a role model. Yeah. And I'm wondering if maybe she fits into your own, you know, kind of story of being a woman in science. I just have never thought about it. I've like, <laughs> just have never, until, um, until about this year when I started thinking about a PhD and there's, I even looked up things about, should I start a PhD? And some of the forums were like, well, if you're going to start a PhD and you're a woman, you have to think about when you're having a child. Yeah. And I was like, who? <laughs> like, I was like, no, like, <laughs> Shut it down. why do I have to think about that? Yeah. And that's the unfair thing, I think. And that's when I started realizing here's where the glass ceiling emerges. Like, yeah. and that's probably the shocking thing for women in science is that you go along and you're like, everything's equal everything's fine if anything like when if anything i was like where are all the guys and like you know one did that and yeah. when you get further and further along that trajectory of academia i think that's when you the glass ceiling for women emerges and i think that's unfair and mm. uh you know being told 
um, by other women in my field to strategize my selection for PhDs when I do it to make sure I'm, um, you know, locked in an academic contract before I choose to have a child because otherwise I'll lose my job and I won't keep my foot in the door in science. Like having that, which is really good advice, but it's also like, why am I getting this advice? And it's, for me, I'm sorry, mom, but I'm not looking to have kids. Mm. And, and so it's like, you're sort of telling me information that I don't really need to know. I don't really want to yeah. know. Yeah. And I think that's when it's sort of, you start realizing that you're getting told how you should be for performing in your career based on your gender. And that's... And how you should plan your life yeah. because of your gender. And because yeah. of my role as my gender. And mm. like, that can suck. It can suck big time. Mm. And... It also can make you weirdly panic. Like I was like, should I be doing a PhD now because I need to have a child soon? And I was like, but I don't even want a child. And then I go through this like, so it's just weird that Mm. um, all of a sudden these unnecessary pressures get put on you. That would be the hardest thing. And the beauty I see in science, unlike any other workforce for women, is that in the end, it's how well you do something in science. And that doesn't matter what gender you are. Mm. That doesn't matter how you identify, how you dress, how you act, Mm. as long as you can do it well. Great. Um, I'm really just, I I threw this one in just because I was thinking about your work and everything. I was like, you know, I just am curious about Mm. this one. Yeah. As an evolutionary biologist, what is the thing that you find is the most common difficulty for people understanding evolution? Uh, I think the question I'm asked the most, because when I explain it to them, it's fine. Yeah, sure. Um, but the question I'm asked the most, and it's also like I love it because it it's, means we can talk about it, it means I get to think, is they'll point out a feature of an organism or an animal um, and they'll be like, oh, like why does it have that? And I'll be like, Uh, I don't know. And so rather than saying that, because then you lose all faith in them and they're like, oh, she's not that good. Um, I say, well, most things, well, not most, I don't say that. I say lots of things in evolution have evolved, not for a specific purpose. And so like, you know, you can get byproducts of evolution or they can be joined with something that has evolved of lots of importance and they can be like a tag along trade or something like that. And that usually gets me out of having to actually explain why it's evolved, which is great. Um, And also like it teaches them something about evolution that it's not this deterministic path because lots of people like to add that sort of creator idea. And instead of having a God, you have the force of evolution acting upon something. And that's the most common thing that really can confuse people is where you're like, oh, just random chance. And that's, that's, you know, what scared people about evolution forever is that it's this you know, unknown sort of thing about it. So I think that would be, it's not annoying though. I love saying it. And then mm. when they have asked me why some sort of feature, I think my favorite was someone asked me why um, men still have nipples. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And I like, do, yeah. Do you know now? I, yeah, I went and looked it up afterwards. After it? I told them my generic question of being like some things and I was totally wrong. Yeah. So like, I think that the jury's still out, but the one of the main reasons is like women really need nipples because otherwise we can't feed our young. Yeah. Um, so the idea that like men sort of have these structures just to ensure that when they pass on their progeny, that the gene for a nipple for a female, if they have a female uh, daughter, is, um, is still going to be there. Like yeah. she's still going to have nipples which is really important. But uh, like, when, so- <laughs> when someone asked me, I was like, huh, 
And then, yeah, I just gave them that answer. And then later I was like, actually, never mind. Actually, I think I went back and told them because I felt bad for telling them a half truth. Um, Well, what you said was still true. It just wasn't the answer to their question. (laughs) And most people do that. I see them sort of tilt their head at me when I've told them. And then I'll try and change the topic. And you can see them being like, she didn't actually answer (laughs) it. And I'll be like, oh, and like fade out. Well, you know, in this post-truth world, I'll take a truth (laughs) anytime. It could work for the Even onion if it's or not something. the right yeah. answer. <laughs> um, well, I think that's about it. Thank you so much for coming ah, in, Kate. But before we finish up, I was just wondering if uh, there's any way that people who are listening that have mm. thought what you're doing is really exciting and um, would like to find out more about your work yeah. and maybe more about Roots and Shoots and things like that. Um, from my science field, I don't know. I don't have a lot out there. Like you can read my paper once it comes out if you're game. Um, but I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, um, but I think uh, you could go, I would definitely plug my supervisor because she's been huge. And so all the work she does has been amazing. Her name's Vera um, Weisbecker and she's at the University of Queensland and she does really cool stuff on um, marsupial evolution in particular. And in regards to roots and shoots, I would just plead anyone that's listening to this and you're like, hey, I have a cousin or I have a brother or sister that's younger, anyone under the age of 25 that wants to be part of Roots and Shoots, it's huge if you join because, you know, you're doing that little thing that makes a difference. Um, So, yeah, just join Roots and Shoots and if you're in Queensland, then you'll probably get an annoying email from me or someone else um, asking you how you want to be involved and we can take it from there. But, yeah. That's great. And are you on any social media? Can people follow you? Oh, yeah. Um, you can follow me at what's my, my Instagram name is um, Opossum. Um, but it's like, <laughs> you, it's a pretty, pretty good one. But I think you can look me up by just looking Kate Garland. There will probably be lots of pictures from when I go to Africa next year for Roots and Shoots. So, But I am going to write a blog about it. Yeah. Um, well, I'll also put up the details yeah. of places people can look for you or your yeah. work as well when I yeah. post the podcast online on the website. Yeah. And um Just once again, thank you so much, Kate, for coming on. It's been amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Bye.